may be seated. If you've got your Bible with you today, turn with me to Luke's Gospel, chapter 3. Continuing our series in this Gospel, we'll read just the first two-thirds or so of of this chapter. In the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, Pontius Pilate being governor of Judea and Herod being tetrarch of Galilee and his brother Philip tetrarch of the region of Iturea and Trachonitis and Lysanias tetrarch of Abilene, during the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John the son of Zechariah in the wilderness and he went into all the region around the Jordan proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. As it's written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. Every valley shall be filled, and every mountain and hill shall be made low, and the crooked shall become straight, and the rough places shall become level ways, and all flesh shall see the salvation of God. He said, therefore, to the crowds that came out to be baptized by him, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come. Bear fruits in keeping with repentance, and do not begin to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father, for I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. And the crowds asked him, What then shall we do? And he answered them, Whoever has two tunics is to share with him who has none, and whoever has food is to do likewise. Tax collectors also came to be baptized and said to him, Teacher, what shall we do? And he said to them, Collect no more than you're authorized to do. Soldiers also asked him, And we, what shall we do? And he said to them, Do not extort money from anyone by threats or by false accusation, and be content with your wages. As the people were in expectation and all were questioning in their hearts concerning John whether he might be the Christ, John answered them all, saying, I baptize you with water. But he was mightier than I is coming, the strap of whose sandals I'm not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn. But the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. So with many other exhortations, he preached good news to the people. But Herod the Tetrarch, who had been reproved by him for Herodias, his brother's wife, and for all the evil things that Herod had done, added added this to them all, that he locked up John in prison. Now when all the people were baptized, and when Jesus also had been baptized and was praying, The heavens were opened, and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove, and a voice came from heaven. You are my beloved Son. With you, I am well pleased. This is the word of the Lord. Please, Father, now bless our hearing, our receiving, and our living of this word. In Jesus we pray. Amen. There is an intensity, a pulse, to this text from the very first words. I'm sure you can sort of feel it. Because John, basically what he does in, a, in just a rapid series of strokes, he zooms us in on a very particular moment in world history, the 15th year of, King, uh, of Emperor uh, Caesar Tiberius. You can find this in a high school history text. This is a real date. And then having set that date, he just kind of zooms out and he flashes before us this world scene full of very powerful characters and their various realms. You've got Pilate and Herod and Philip and uh, Lysanias and you know, its various regions in the south and the north of the land of Israel, of course, Caesar and Rome, and then in Jerusalem in, the, in Herod's temple, these mighty high priests, Annas and his son-in-law Caiaphas. 
And all of these characters, you know, they, they bear on this drama that's about to unfold. And yet you can see that in Luke's framing here, there's a subtle but quite powerful message. That while this world that we're about to see things unfolding in, while this world is their world, like these are the, play, the, the big players. The, these are the powers of the age. The way Luke has framed this, they're actually just a background for the really world-shaping things that are about to come on the scene. That is a very powerful message, subtle but powerful, because we could think about that now, too. There are, if I asked you, who are the players in 2022, the big powers in their realms? You could identify them, you pay attention. And they matter to what God is doing, but there's also a sense in which they are just background to what's really changing the world and what God is doing, and that's true here. Now, what's interesting is that in contrast to the passive presence of those powers, they're there, but they're not doing really anything in the text. Who is the immediately active character in the text? Who's the immediately active character here? It is not John. It is the word of the Lord. You've got to read carefully. In the days of these powers, the word of the Lord moved. The word of the Lord came. It's not a human who's the really active character here. It's the word of the Lord. And you all know from the Bible, when the word of God starts moving and coming, stuff happens, right? And there's an echo in this opening of the introductions to prophetic books in the Old Testament. You would often have Old Testament prophets introduced that in the year of so-and-so, the king, and such-and-such is going on. The word of the Lord came to, who knows, Isaiah, Jonah, whatever. And so there's an echo here of the prophets. And the word of the Lord comes, as you rightly said, to this fellow John. Now, we know John. We met him as a baby. And you'll remember from the opening uh, chapters that the birth of John, Luke quite intentionally wants that birth to remind us of another birth centuries before, the birth of a little guy named Samuel. The circumstances of John's birth and Samuel's birth are in many ways quite similar. And Samuel, you might remember, is the prophet who was the kingmaker prophet. And so there's just echoes going on here, that this might be a prophet who's kind of related to another kingmaker. Maybe there's something of making of kings going on here. And the word of God comes to John in a very particular place, and that is it comes to him in the wilderness. We are not in Israel. We are over the Jordan in the wilderness. Now, who are the two great prophets in Israel's history, particularly these two really big names, big, big-time prophets whose work centered in the wilderness. I mean, you know this, I'm sure. Who, who were they? The two big, Israel's greatest prophets, you could probably say. Moses and Elijah, exactly. You guys are sharp. Moses and Elijah. And that alerts us, just this kind of echo of the work of Moses and the work of Elijah, it, it alerts us to the very first big piece of John's word ministry here. And the first thing we're going to see here is that John's ministry is a ministry of confrontation. That's what I would like you to notice. This is a ministry of confrontation. Moses was kind of confrontational. Elijah certainly was. Let's look at this for a moment. A ministry of confrontation. Now, when, while the word of God comes to John in the wilderness, he then goes toward Israel, and he preaches in all the region, we're told, around the Jordan River. Now, that's not just convenient. I mean, if you're going to baptize a lot of people, you've got to have a lot of water, and the Jordan would have provided that. But it's more than that. Because in ministering around the Jordan, so we're outside the land, but we're at the Jordan River, this would have reminded Israel, I mean, they knew their scriptures well, and they would have totally gotten the imagery here. This is a reminder 
of those extraordinary events. See if I can get my geography right. So if you're looking at a map, I'm, uh, I'm over here in the east across Jordan, and we, there, there's the land of Israel between me and the Mediterranean Sea. There was this an extraordinary series of events in which Israel, as a people, was baptized. Now, I'm not using that word, just making it up. The Apostle Paul actually says this. Israel as a people, they were baptized out of Egypt into God's rule, right? He says they were baptized into Moses through the Red Sea. So there was a baptism. You're not Pharaoh's slaves anymore. Your king is now Yahweh, the God who gives Sabbath, the God who gives liberty and and, and feeds and blesses people from heaven. So they are baptized through the Red Sea into God's rule. And then there's a kind of further extension of that baptism some years later, where they are baptized now through the Jordan River. Again, they pass through the river on dry land, and they're baptized into God's realm. So they're baptized out of Egypt into God's rule. God is now king. They're further baptized through the Jordan into God's realm, the, what we call the promised land. All of that would have been sort of echoing here. And recall what's between those two parts of Israel's national baptism. What happens between the Red Sea and the Jordan River and the conquest? What's the big, big thing? It's Sinai, right? It's this moment when God from heaven comes and he covenants with his people Israel. And in that covenant, he gives them, you'll remember, two, two big things. He gives them grace. Because really, that covenant is so much built around the animal sacrifices. And what are those animal sacrifices doing? They are atoning for Israel's sin. They are, they are taking, they're, they're cleansing Israel's sin. The, the, the judgment of God is placed on the animal. And the animal experiences fiery death as opposed to the worshiper. And so that's just at the center of this whole relationship with, with, with God and Israel. God gives grace to them. They can live with God as his friends, as his children. That's grace. And he also then, having given them his grace, he gives them his law. The idea is that this people, they're rooted in fellowship with God. They have the astonishing privilege among all the peoples of the world of living with the true and living God. Holy as he is, sinful as they are, they can live with him. And rooted in that fellowship, the idea is that through obeying God's law, they're going to bear fruit. They're going to become a holy nation. Lives overflowing with love for God and love for their neighbors. That's what the law was about. How how'd that turn out? <laughs> you know, by the time John appears on the scene here, it's obvious that the nation of Israel as a nation is just woefully delinquent in that calling. They are so much not what God called them to be. And now there is a do-or-die moment of reckoning. God is not kidding here. This is not playing around. This is Elijah-like. I mean, Elijah comes to a spiritually dead Israel in the days of wicked King Ahab, who wants to turn Israel into like a Canaanite nation. And he just comes at Israel and basically says, you turn back to God or you're just going to continue to die. And that's kind of John's attitude here. You'll notice he just comes at Israel with this fiercely confrontational language. I was actually thinking about this this week. Can you imagine if I ever said from the pulpit, you know, you guys are a nest of snakes. Oh, my word, the emails I would get. Well, John, he just, you, know, you brood of vipers. You, you're on the wrong side of things. There's God and the serpent. And you're like, you know, maybe you need to think about whether you're with the serpent. That's really strong. And he just thunders to Israel. That covenant that God made with them, it's not been rescinded. It is still in force. The blessings of it, the curses of that covenant, they still stand. And a watershed moment has now been reached in Israel's history. And you'll notice here, there are two things that Israel must do. 
Two things Israel must do in this watershed moment where God is coming to enforce his covenant with Israel. Number one, John tells them they need to return to God for forgiveness. Now that's what the word repent means. He baptizes them. Notice in verse 3, he's proclaiming a baptism of returning for forgiveness. He actually says it a bit more strongly in verse 7. He says, who warned you guys that there's a need now to flee from the wrath to come? You need to turn back to God for forgiveness. Another way of saying that, you need to flee from God's coming wrath. And I really love that term. One of the things I remember most vividly from Dave Ramsey's um, financial peace course was the time he flashed up on the screen a picture. He was talking about fleeing from economic entanglements, you know, debt bondage and so on. And he actually flashed up on the screen a video of, on the, uh, on, on the plains of Africa, a cheetah chasing down a gazelle. And that gazelle, you ever seen a gazelle run from a cheetah? That's fleeing. It isn't like, you know, maybe we all kind of should... No, it's like, run or you're going to die. And that's what John says. Who, who, how did, who told you guys you finally figured out you need to flee from the wrath to come? And it's interesting, though, where do you flee from God's wrath? You flee to God's mercy. Where else are you going to run? <laughs> so the whole idea is, in fleeing from the wrath to come, flee, for, flee to God for mercy. Come back, return, repent for forgiveness. It's interesting, John's ministry is confrontational, but it's not condemning. The entire history of God's covenant is rooted in grace. I am the Lord, the Lord God, merciful, gracious, slow to anger, abounding in loving kindness and faithfulness. That's the God of the covenant. He's a God of mercy. He loves showing mercy. That's the way it's always been. And so John is, he is warning of wrath to to cause Israel to flee back to God for forgiveness and mercy. But the longstanding problem with Israel, as you know, is they will draw nigh to God and draw nigh to God with their mouth. And their hearts are far away. Which brings us to the second thing that Israel must do. Return to God for forgiveness. The second thing John says, beginning in verse 8, you also need to bear fruit that shows you've truly returned to God. Bear fruits that are in keeping with returning. If you really have repented, you're, you're really back with the Lord. You're really back in fellowship with God. You really have come home. There will be fruit. You cannot live in active fellowship with this God and not have fruit. If there's no fruit, that means that you've not really returned to him. And John says, you know, this isn't, we're not messing about. Wrath is imminent. The axe is in swing. Dead trees are going to burn if there's not fruit. So run to God. He will be merciful to you. He will forgive you. And then because you are with him then bear the fruits that show you've really come back to God or the axes and swing. Now, I just want to just camp here for a second and just like to notice a few things. Beloved, this is, this is right here, this is the basic dynamic of what we call grace in the lives of God's people. This is the basic dynamic of grace. Our fruit is never the basis of our fellowship with God. We are not welcome to fellowship with God because we have all kinds of fruit. John does not say here, now y'all bear fruit and God will forgive you. God will take you as his people again. That's not what he says. It is by God's grace alone that he is for us and he is with us. There is just forgiveness with him. Mercy. We don't pay for that. We don't earn that. That is just God's free gift. Fruit is never the basis for our fellowship with God. But listen, fruit is always the result of our fellowship with God. Always. If there's a fruit problem in our lives, here it's a whole nation that's not bearing fruit. 
The only solution to that fruit problem is to go back to grace. It's to go back to God's love and mercy and forgiveness. So, you know, don't, don't, if you've got a fruit problem, don't start with fruit. Start with grace. <laughs> start with God and his mercies. But that lack of fruit is a sure sign that though God is certainly gracious, our hearts are not somehow tuned, as it were, to that grace. We're not, we're not truly receptive to it. We're not restful in God's grace. We're not responsive to his grace, you know, because that's what happens in hearts that are tuned to grace. Is they start bearing fruit. If it's a fruit problem, it's a heart problem. And so what, what, what he's saying here to Israel is that they, as a nation, they are not bearing the fruit of Father Abraham's faith. You know, God is about to do something very big, and he is not looking at an Israel here who are a people faithfully waiting, prayerfully waiting, eagerly waiting for the Lord. They're not ready to receive and respond to what God's about to do, and they need to, they need to as it were, you know, plow up their hearts, plow up the ground of their hearts. And so the people, you know, they're, they're, they're following John, and they ask a really good question in verse 10. So specifically, John, what are we talking about? You know, fruit, what is that? What is that? What's it look like when Abrahamic faith is in practice? And John gets very real here. You know, he really goes after some very specific, like, this is, you don't have to be particularly imaginative to see what he's talking about here. He says, number one, if you've got stuff and you've got extra, you give it away. One thing that characterizes people who know God is they just get really generous. They are a sharing people. There is something about truly trusting the living and true God that just opens up your hands. Whereas if you don't trust God, you're going to, be a, you're going to grasp things. You're going to hoard Things, Because you're going to need something to kind of give you a stable place. Because it's not the Lord who's given you that, that quietness and, and rest of heart. Generosity is fruit of faith. And justice, you know, there are some crazy people who show up at these baptisms. Tax collectors, soldiers, I mean, good grief. How about tax collectors? Well, here's another thing that happens when you have Abrahamic faith. You are not going to use your power ever, some position of power that you have. You're never going to use that to take what belongs to another person. Don't collect more taxes than you've been authorized to because you can. Soldiers, don't extort money from people because you've got a sword and you can threaten them. There's a sense of justice. You think about Boaz, that great man of the Old Testament. Very wealthy, very powerful, very influential. And yet there's just this totally just God-like awareness of and, and, and taking care of and spreading his wings over the vulnerable and the needy. And not just generosity and justice, but contentment. Soldiers, be content with your wages. If you really know the living and true God, not only does it make you ready to share, makes you really serious about doing your duty to people and not exploiting them, it also just at a heart level, your whole life is no longer driven by this lust to acquire and advance and climb. I mean, if God allows you to climb, praise the Lord. But you're not driven by that lust. You are driven by gratitude. There's just a contentment. God is my father. And so what I have is his gift, and I can, I'm at peace. God takes care of me. That's what Abrahamic faith... I mean, think about Abraham. You know, he became wealthy, but how much waiting did that man have to do? Just contentedly waiting on the Lord. That's the fruit. And John is saying here, for Israel as a whole, he's, he goes on to say, it is perilous to ignore all of that that God is calling them to, and just assure themselves, look, we're Abraham's children. You know, we have Abraham as our ancestor. We're good. John says, don't talk to God about being children of Abraham. 
if you don't follow the faith of Abraham and bear fruit like his. There's a very interesting verse in the prophet Isaiah. Listen, it says, listen to me, you who pursue righteousness, you who seek the Lord. Look to the rock from which you were hewn and to the quarry from which you were dug. Look to Abraham, your father, and to Sarah who bore you, for he was but one when I called him that I might bless him and multiply him. And so John is saying, when he says, God's able from these stones to raise up children from Abraham. He's saying, look, you know, God, for no reason at all except his grace, he hewed an entire nation out of the rock of this man, this believer, Abraham. And you know what? He is perfectly able to do that again. He can raise up another Israel by just his own sovereign, gracious choice. He can, as Jesus says in another gospel, take the kingdom away from fruitless trees and give it, as Jesus says, to a people producing the fruits of that kingdom. He can bring forth a new tree out of a cut-down stump that's fallen in judgment. This is the ministry of confrontation. Now, the, the echoes of Isaiah's prophecies may explain what John's audience does next in verse 15, because this is not just a ministry of confrontation. It's also a ministry of concentration. Let's think about that for a moment. Because in verse 15, we have a shift. So John's preaching in this very, very charged setting, lots of history here. There's these very strong notes of God's coming judgment, and it's big. Renewing the covenant, raising up the true seed of Abraham. I mean, this is language that just echoes from the prophets of Israel, and it leads the crowds to wonder in their hearts what we already know, because we actually read, John gave, Luke rather, gave it to us there in verses 4 through 6. He says, I'm going to tell you a little something about John. He's that one that Isaiah 40 talks about who's preparing the way of the Lord. Getting the, leveling things out for God's arrival. Well, we know that, but the people don't. And they're wondering as they hear all this and see what's going on. And just this it's very charged, you know, kind of preaching environment. And they, they, they start to wonder, is, is this the arrival of Messiah? Maybe this is it. Maybe this is the moment. The big renewal of God's covenant. The Lord is arriving and his salvation in the latter days. Could this be it? And John, it's interesting, he basically just says very simply, right time, wrong person. And he concentrates the attention of his audience on two things. And it's very interesting, these two things that he concentrates his audience on, they actually line up exactly with the two things he told Israel they must do. The first thing he concentrates their attention on is the imminence of Messiah. Messiah is, he's, he says, he's coming right after me. Now that lines up with the first thing he told Israel they needed to do, because earlier he told them they needed to flee to God's mercy, right? They needed to flee from the wrath of God to his forgiveness. And that lines up perfectly with concentrating on Messiah, because if you know the prophecies of Messiah in the Old Testament, this Messiah is going to be, he, he's, he's really... He is God's provision of forgiveness for Israel. I mean, so many mercies are promised to Israel throughout the Old Testament. And as, as, the, as history moves along and the prophets continue to unfold this, you, you realize Messiah, that great anointed savior, king, prince, ruler, helper, serpent crusher, he, he's like the embodiment of all those mercies. They, they all kind of come together with him. All the grace that God promised he will be the one who bears our sins. You know, it's that Isaiah 53 language you all know so well. The Lord will lay on him the iniquity of us all. If you're going to flee to God for mercy, flee to Messiah. And he's right, he's right behind me, John says. It's interesting. 
John's father, Zechariah, actually sang about this when John was born. You remember that he says, he's singing at John's birth, and he says, You, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways to, notice the language, to give knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of their sins because of the tender mercy of our God by which the sunrise shall visit us from on high. When the Messiah comes, there will be salvation and the forgiveness of sins. You want to repent for forgiveness of sins? Receive your Messiah. So that's the first focus. And the second thing he concentrates the people's attention on is the spirit that Messiah brings. Because if Messiah is God's provision of forgiveness, it's the spirit, God's spirit, who's the long-awaited provision for fruitlessness. Man, this has been such a problem throughout Israel's history. They don't bear fruit. And the hope that that will change has now, through the prophets, come to focus on the Spirit. And we get this again in Isaiah, because listen, the thing that Isaiah prophesies, I'll read it in a moment, but he, he prophesies that when Messiah comes, when Israel is chopped down to a stump and God raises up a branch from that stump, he will be the Spirit-filled one and he will be fruitful. Listen to what Isaiah says. The Lord God of hosts will lop the boughs with terrifying power. It sounds like John. The great in height will be hewn down and the lofty will be brought low. God will cut down the thickets of the forest with an axe and Lebanon will fall by the majestic one. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse and a branch from his roots will bear fruit. And the spirit of the Lord will rest on him. The spirit of wisdom and understanding. The spirit of counsel and might. The spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And it's because that coming one will be the spirit-filled, fruit-bearing one that he will make Israel fruitful by giving Israel that spirit. And that's what Ezekiel speaks about when he says, God is speaking. He says, I will sprinkle clean water on you. Baptism, anyone? And you shall be clean. And from all your idols, I will cleanse you, Israel. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I'll put within you, and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh, and I'll put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes. You will be a fruit-bearing people by the spirit. Now, there's still a warning here, you'll notice. Because if you reject the Messiah and reject the spirit that Messiah brings, John says, you will be dead trees. You'll be a chaff. The winnowing fork of Messiah is in his hand. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. You reject the Holy Spirit, he'll baptize you with fires of judgment. And you'll be swept away in that fiery judgment. But in focusing Israel on their Messiah and on the spirit of Messiah, John, verse 18, is totally preaching good news. With many other exhortations, he preached good news to the people. So the confrontation's hard, but the concentration is concentrating on good news. And then, Luke just goes, this is such a cool writer thing. Then John, out of nowhere, jumps ahead in the story. So this isn't even chronologically how it was. He just jumps ahead in the story, and he whisks John off the scene. He just jumps ahead in the story to when Herod imprisoned John for accusing Herod of taking his brother's wife and doing many other wicked things, which Herod did. And Herod hated that. And so he, he had John in prison. And later he had John's head chopped off. And John just jumps ahead in the story. Like, John, wait a minute. We're, we're in the middle of a story. He just jumps ahead and he just whisks John out of the scene altogether. And who are we left with? Like, John's ministry has been concentrating Israel on the Messiah. He's right behind me. He's going to bring the Spirit. He's going to bring the fire of judgment. And all of a sudden, Luke just goes, see you, John. 
And we are focused, we are concentrated on the only person who's left, and that's Jesus. All the people have been baptized. Johnson whisked away. And when Jesus had been baptized, what a scene of peace and power and fatherly love. Here's the Messiah. He is standing in the place of sinful Israel. He's standing with the sinners. He's not detached from them. He's not holding himself above them. He is here among them. But it's not a single taint of sin. Here he is. Look at him. The obedient one. The fruitful branch. And the Holy Spirit descends. And the Father speaks. And he says, here he is. This is, this is my beloved son. You're my beloved son. You're the true Israel. I am well pleased in you. And we're just concentrated on him. Now we'll see where he is about to go next time. But for now, I just want to give us two takeaways from this very intense, pulsing scene. We've just kind of walked through two things. Takeaway number one, I hope you think about repentance. But this is what I want to say. Repentance is turning to Christ. If I say the word repent, most of you start thinking about your sin. That's not bad, but repentance is turning not just from sin, it's turning to the Savior. It's turning to Christ. Real repentance, because you can feel bad about your sins and try to change and, you know, have a whole war going on with this, you know, all the moral failings in your life, but real Christian repentance is turning to Jesus and the gift that he is for us and to us. It is real repentance is, is coming to rest. You know, we stand before God and we're just naked. I hate these moments. I'm able to insulate myself much of the time from how bad my heart really can be. But there are moments when God has just sort of done something to strip off and I'm just naked before the Lord and there's this exposure and you're guilty and you're full of shame. You can't even hate your sin well. You just got nothing. And repentance is in that very state. It is just resting in the fact that Christ is my provision. God forgives me for his sake. I am righteous because he has been righteous for me. And that's why the promise of Christian baptism undergirds truly Christian repentance. When you're going to repent of sin, you go back to your baptism. And what does the baptism Christian baptism say to you, it says, Christ is for you. This forgiveness John was talking about, it's for you. This cleansing that you need, it's for you. Righteousness, for you. In fact, beloved, your baptism tells you that God says over you, for Jesus' sake, over, over you, I am, I am well pleased. I am well pleased because you are in Christ. And can I say to you, that is the only place from which real holiness can begin. You can beat yourself up with God's law all you want. If you do not come to a place where your heart experiences rest in Christ, your provision, Christ, your sin bearer, Christ, your righteousness, you actually don't have the fuel to truly pursue holiness. There's a very interesting moment, we'll get to it in the book of Acts much later, where... 
Paul, the apostle, is telling the story of the day he was knocked off his donkey and converted. And he mentions something that Jesus said to him from heaven that day. And he's quoting Jesus here. And Jesus says, to, at the time, Saul of Tarsus, he says, I'm sending you, sending you to the Gentiles. Now, look, notice the language. To open their eyes so they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins. And then this phrase, not just forgiveness of sins, but a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. When you come to Jesus and you're, you come to rest in him as your provision, you're not only forgiven, you begin to be made holy through that faith. You begin to change by resting, change by knowing the love of God in Christ. Repentance is turning to Christ. And the second thing I want to say, and then I'm done, we just vastly underestimate the fruit that God intends from our repentance. We vastly underestimate it. What is God's spirit capable of in you and in me? I had a conversation with some of our young men this week. We were talking about one of the things that's just so awful about our modern obsession with these self-selected identities. This is who I am. And whether you are into that sort of thing, we all have our own self-narrative. Like, I've got a Ben Miller story in my head, and I think Ben Miller tells that story pretty well because Ben Miller is Ben Miller, and, you know, of course, he would know best about Ben Miller, right? So I have the story of Ben Miller in my head. We all have these self-narratives and these self-identities. You know what is awful about them all? Every one of our self-narratives and self-selected identities has this lie in it. Well, I could never. I'm not that kind of person. Do you know you actually, standing before God, have no right to say that? You cannot say, well, <laughs> you know, I'm an INTJ. Whatever. No. Do you know what the Spirit of God is capable of? You have your little sense of what you're capable of. This is what I do. This is the kind of person I am. God says, because of the Spirit, all of that's just cleared away. But because it's the Spirit of God at work, God's intent, which is, could be pretty scary, to transform us, really whether we like it or not, from glory to glory to glory, because of the Holy Spirit, that's exciting. It's not burdensome. It's not intimidating because this change, God will do it. And he will do it graciously. He will do it powerfully. He will do it surely. He will have children who live like his children. He will have a kingdom of priests whose lives together are a living sacrifice that is well-pleasing to the Lord. He will, he will have it. And you're part of that, and so am I. Much more to come. Let's pray. Father, bless these into our hearts and change us from glory to glory into the image of your Son, and we pray.